1 John 2, I want to read verses 15 through 17, and then 1 John 4, 4 and 5. Hear the Word of God. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And then turn over to chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we address this theme tonight about fighting back worldliness through union with thy Son by faith, we pray for intentional living. We pray for an increasing awareness of the antithesis between the world and our vital Christianity. And we pray for the strength of thy Holy Spirit to say no to Satan and yes to thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think we're all aware that we're at war. We're at war with our own hearts. We've been at war since the Garden of Eden, and we'll continue at war until the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth. We're in a war between light and darkness, between sin and righteousness, between holiness and wickedness. In biblical language, between the seed of the woman, Jesus, and the seed of the serpent, this ungodly world. And so the Apostle John reminds us that this war is between the love of God and all that is in the world. The love of God and all that is in the world. So the world we live in is the great theater of this war. And there are battlefields everywhere. Battlefields in the seat of government, in courtrooms, and centers of culture. Battlefields in offices and workshops of businesses. Battlefields in the marketplaces and entertainment districts of our cities. Battlefields in colleges, schools, and churches. In our homes and families. And most importantly, in our own hearts and minds. Now, as long as we are in this body, we must live in this world. Retreat, escape, is not an option. God wills that we live in the world as it is, but that we live here as the people of God, being in the world but not of the world. Or in biblical terms, to live godly, antithetically to this world. In Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 12. 
And so, welcome to the struggle. Welcome to the battle. The worst thing you can do as a Christian is lay down your weapons, take off your Christian armor, and pretend that somehow you can be a friend of the world and the world a friend to you. It isn't going to happen. It never will happen. Living in this world as a Christian demands entrance through a narrow gate and a daily walk down a narrow path. It involves living by faith through self-denial, taking up the cross, following Jesus, waging a holy war, as John Bunyan called it, in this vanity fair, in the midst of this hostile world. And what a war it is in 21st century North America. For the world, you see, our culture does not fight fairly or clearly, does not agree to cease fires, does not sign peace treaties. And today, myriads of Christians, so-called Christians, fail to realize the war that is going on for their own souls. Because of that, their nominal Christianity gives way, and they're destroyed by their worldliness. They learn to think like the world, to talk like the world, to dress like the world, to speak like the world, to act like the world. But John says, worldliness ought to have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. So to equip us to overcome the world, even by our faith, I want to look at three things with you tonight. First, the nature of worldliness, what it is. Second, the remedy of worldliness. And third, the fight against worldliness through our union with Christ. So first, then, the nature of worldliness. A common rule of engagement on the battlefield is to know your enemy. To know your enemy. I was in the last year of the American lottery system in drafting people into the army. That will give away my age very quickly. But I got a very low number, so I had to sign up right away. I'm no hero. I didn't go overseas. I didn't fight in any wars. I just signed up for the Army Reserves. But in that six months of active duty and the years following of weekend meetings, summer camps, over and over and over again, I heard in the army these three words, know your enemy. Know your enemy. And you see, that's what we need also in this war, in the spiritual battle against worldliness. From a mere strategic viewpoint, you need to know your enemy if you're going to fight rightly. The worst thing you can do is say, I'm not in a battle. I don't need to know my enemy. I'm going to go by my feelings. I'm going to live as a Christian on Sunday and live like the world Monday through Saturday. Our enemy disguises himself, the Bible says, as an angel of light. His name is Satan. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. So worldliness can be very deceptive. Sin rarely, if ever, appears to us as the horrendous, insane beast that it is. 
until it gets us and bites us with its snake-like poison. Worldliness, if it appeared in all of its blackness and darkness and addictiveness, we would all be repulsed by it. But what Satan does is he dresses up worldliness in alluring ways, tempting ways, fascinating ways. Proverbs 5, 3 through 5. Worldliness is a sin that easily entangles us before we're aware of it. So I want to look at two things as we define worldliness. First, what it is not, what it is not, and then what it is. We must do this because it's too easy for worldliness to cloak itself in hypocrisy and self-flattery. Satan doesn't mind if you embrace counterfeit godliness. One way he does this is by making us think that worldliness is some extreme form of wickedness that we then feel safe from committing. We're not as worldly as our neighbor next door. But matters are not always so plain. First, worldliness is not always an open rejection of God. Though such rejection is, of course, worldliness. This rejection is not synonymous with worldliness. Worldliness begins much earlier than absolute rejection. Worldliness begins in us when we do not view things from the perspective of God's Word. And you got to get that. Worldliness begins and continues whenever, wherever we do not view things from the perspective of God's Word. You can be quite religious, still be very worldly. You can be a monk eating scraps of dry bread every day and spend the whole day praying and still be very worldly. You see, the world can come to us wrapped in Christian clothing, speaking Christian words. John put it this way, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. He goes on to say, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. People who are worldly are controlled by the world's mindset not by the Word of God. They think worldly. They're under its dominion. They say what the world likes them to say. But they're not necessarily openly in enmity against God. They can style themselves as prophets of the truth of God. So we need to realize that just because a person is religious and goes to church and goes through some of the religious hoops oriented towards spiritual things, and even talks about God's Word, he may still be thinking and speaking and acting as selfishly as the world. And then secondly, worldliness is not always the same as a grossly immoral life. You can be worldly and not fall into any scandalous sins. Worldliness can appear to be very upright and moral in its outward actions. Many professing Christians today Millions of them live worldly lives. They're worldly in more acceptable ways. Acceptable to their fellow men, that is. But not to God. 
One of the best examples of this is the Apostle James. James warns against the friendship of the world and teaches us that that means, first of all, we must keep ourselves unspotted from the world. But against what sins does James warn? He's not talking here in, like, like the book of Proverbs uh, against the harlot and so on. No, here's the sins he warns against. Not fornication or drunkenness, not harlotry, but showing favoritism to the rich. Chapter 2. Having a bitter, destructive tongue that cuts people down behind their back. Chapter 3. Getting into quarrels because you're not getting what you want. Chapter 4. Taking advantage of your employees and your workers. Chapter 5. You see, worldliness comes a little closer to home when we think like James. So what is worldliness? Well, worldliness means a state of being or becoming like the world. Paul expresses it well when he says, being conformed to this world, Romans 12, verse 2. Because this world is a realm of fallen mankind, worldliness, and here's my most basic definition, is any human activity pursued without God or against God. Anything, any thought, any speech, any action pursued without God or against God. It is anything that is antithetical to God's mind as revealed in the Bible. Worldliness rebels against the Lord and against His anointed, Jesus Christ, refusing to reflect the glory of God as we were created to do. Now this is shocking, but this is biblical. You see, every single second of your life that you don't live for the glory of God, you're being worldly. And being worldly, you're being sinful. So when God converted me when I was 14, 15, that, that, that age, and I tried to patch up my life, I tried to please God, I wanted to climb up to heaven with my good works, God emptied me of my righteousness, and He showed me something profoundly. I still remember the very place in the sidewalk at, at Lloyd Norrick's High School where it happened, where God showed me, walking to my car after the end of school one day, that every single second that I did not live for the glory of God, and I had never lived for the glory of God, I was being worldly and sinful and anti-God. And that's when I realized that I could never, never save myself in any way. If I was ever to be saved, it would have to come from an alien righteousness outside of me, as Luther put it, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to change me from within, to be oriented to God and not to this world, to have God become big and man become small instead of the other natural way of God being small and man being big. So our best divine guidance for understanding worldliness is, of course, the obvious text that I read to you, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And what John is saying here in these three verses is that all human love, all human love, we all love things, no matter who we are by nature, all human love, not ruled by the love of God, is worldliness. 
Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, John says, verse 15. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the Bible defines worldliness in terms of love. It's a self-centered love, however, for, for people and for the things of this world. You know, it's interesting when you, uh, when you go into a non-Christian store and you want to get a card for your wife for her birthday. I have the roughest time finding even one that's remotely acceptable because they all say, well, you mean so much to me. It's all about me somehow <laughs> when I'm trying to, trying to find a card that just talks about how wonderful my wife is in her own personality, in her own character, and how wonderful it is that she fears and loves the Lord. It's hard to find. Because we just think so much in terms of, what does she mean to me? What does this mean to me? What does that mean to me? And so we think selfishly. We think worldly. And John contrasts here love for the world with love for the Father. You can't love the Father and think worldly at the same time. The two loves are incompatible. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. One love must rule our lives, dear friends. A holy passion for God, as the Puritans called it, a white-hot flame of zeal for the living God and for the things of God. Is that true in your life? Are you hooked, as we heard before, to God? to the belt of Jesus Christ? Or are your souls hooked, line and sinker, by Satan? And he's reeling you in more and more towards this world. You see, God created man to enjoy all things richly out of love for God, relying on God's power, obeying God's will, pursuing God's glory. But man has rejected God's love for us and cast love for God out of his heart. And now by nature we just have idolatrous love. Anything that we put above God is an idol. It can be shopping, it can be the computer, it can be all kinds of things that you think are innocent, things that are in and of themselves perhaps harmless, but because they have an inordinate amount of your time, or your, think, your thinking patterns, because they help you marginalize God, they become idols. You, you put God in the periphery, and you allow these things to become central. So you become a computer-aholic, a shop-aholic, or, or whatever, a car-aholic, or, or, or just a sin-aholic. That's what worldliness does. Now, if I had to boil it down into a couple bullet points, I would, I would say it this way. Number one, worldliness brings a desire to please sinful men more than to please the holy God. This is part of what John means when he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. People who love the world live for the smiles, the praises, the promotions of men more than they do for the living God. Number two, worldliness brings a higher concern for the physical 
than the image of God in one's soul. Higher concern for the physical than the image of God in one's soul. So John describes this as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he said these things conspire together to make us crave things for the body. Often this is a craving for beautiful, expensive, pleasant things, or we might covet the, uh, the nicest looking car, the newest technology, or having a boyfriend or girlfriend, or any other material thing. And what we do, of course, we don't want to admit we're worldly, so we, we, we call these things our needs, our needs, but they're not our needs, they're our wants. And there are wants minus God. And our wants minus God equals worldliness. My wife teaches in our Sunday school program in our church, and we bring in all kinds of kids from the neighborhood, uh, a lot of very, very needy children. And um, one day she's teaching five- and six-year-olds, and she says, uh, does anybody have any needs? that I can bring before the Lord to pray for you today. And one little boy raises his hand and says, uh, I need a bike. Little girl sitting next to him, four or five years old, looks at him and says, that's not a need, that's a want. <laughs> My wife is thinking, and when she told me the story, I'm thinking, wow, she's a pretty good little theologian, that girl. <laughs> You see, but we do that so cleverly, don't we? We think they're needs when they're wants. Our real need, our real meat and drink is to be like Jesus. And Jesus said, my meat and drink is to do the will of my Father who calls me to glorify Him. That's your real need, to be saved, to be conformed to Jesus, and to do the will of your Father. Third, worldliness brings a preoccupation with temporal things instead of the eternal kingdom of God. John says the world passes away, verse 17, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see, what a worldly person doesn't want to face is that the world's best pleasures are all incredibly temporary. I've had the privilege of pastoring literally hundreds and hundreds of people in their 80s and 90s in my life. In fact, our church had 80 people over 80 at one point. Now we have 70 people over 70. And I've talked to all those people countless times. And there is not a single one of all those hundreds that will say anything but this to me. I just can't believe. I just can't believe how old I am. I can't believe I'm staring death in the face. Where'd my life go to? I blinked a couple times and I, I was out of school. I blinked a couple more times and I, I was married. I blinked a couple more times I had kids. Blinked a couple more times I had grandkids. And blinked a couple more times I'm retiring. Blinked a couple more times. And I'm past the age of the very strong. Life flies by. This world's best pleasures are just temporary blips like a flower that grows up and fades, like a cloud, the Bible says, it comes and disappears. Your life, my life, is incredibly short. 
This world is not our portion. It's our passage. God has marked our death day on his calendar. What would you gain if you gained the whole world? In the end, nothing but a nice coffin in which to be buried. Charles Spurgeon once said, this world doesn't realize that it carries its own coffin on its back and it will soon have grave dust in its mouth. You see, eternal glory, eternal glory with Jesus awaits the child of God whose meat and drink is to do the will of God. Union with Christ is absolutely essential. And it must impact my whole life. And finally, John says, worldliness feeds the pride of life. Pride comes in all kinds of varieties, forms, and shapes. Jonathan Edwards said, pride's like an onion. You take away one layer and you think you've got it solved and there's another layer underneath. Pride is not something we can easily nail to a wall. It's like jelly. It escapes us. Pride can be present when we sin willingly and pride can be present when we attempt to do the good. Our very nature, in essence, rests in a prideful estimation of ourselves. This is worldliness, the pride of life. So that's worldliness for you. It's the sad, empty, vain, wicked, blasphemous love of this world. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, union with Christ. That's what this whole conference is about. It's faith in Jesus, John says, chapter 5, verse 4, that causes us to triumph over this world. Faith obtains the victory over the powers of this world because faith unites us to Jesus and enables us to draw upon the resources of the Savior. See, if you want your lamp to work at home, you need to connect it to a power source. Likewise, faith connects us to the one who alone has overcome the world. So how does faith do that? Well, in a couple of ways. Number one, sharing in Christ's death. Christ died to cut the cord between sinners and the world. Galatians 1.4 says, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this evil present world. He didn't come to just deliver us from eternal condemnation, great as that is, but he also came to deliver us from this present evil world. So he endured beatings and shame and pain and rejection and God-forsakenness in order to wrench us out of this present evil world and to put us into the kingdom of God. And so Paul tells us in Romans 6, that believers share in Christ's death and thereby die to sin's power. Knowing this, he says in verse 6, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. When Jesus died organically, believers die in him because we're united to Jesus. So there must be a vital experience of our old man's crucifixion 
with Christ. The old man designates the old depraved nature that is thoroughly corrupted with sin and in love with this present world. This old world-loving nature must be definitively put to death through the death of Christ so that when our souls encamp at the cross of Calvary and we see what this precious Savior went through for us, we say, I want to live for Him. If He died for me, I want to live for Him. And we give up the world Henceforth, we want to live wholly and solely for Jesus Christ. That this body of sin, Paul says, might be destroyed. That henceforth, we should not serve sin. So it's because of Christ's death, you see, applied to us by the Holy Spirit and received by faith, that the Christian is no longer in bondage to sin. Outside of Christ. I'm going to be in bondage to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life all the time. Sin is a terrible master that has sufficient power to coerce and control in spite of the sinner's best intentions or efforts. You know the struggle. It's illogical, you see, and impossible for the believer to continue under sin's control. Sin will not have dominion over us, but we still know the struggle with sin. How the old nature still wants to get back at that new man inside of us, wants to, wants to penetrate, wants to regain lost ground, this holy war of Romans 7. And yet we can say, I've died to sin through the death of Jesus. And secondly, the remedy for worldliness is to share not only in being a partaker of his death, but to be a partaker of his resurrection. His resurrection. It's impossible to be united to his death without being united to his life. Martin Luther once said, the two greatest events that make up our salvation, the two hinges on which the door of salvation swings open, is Christ's death and resurrection. Good Friday and Easter. And you cannot separate them on that weekend each year, can you? They're one breath together. They're one combined act that brings in entire salvation. So it is in the believer's life, Luther said. The Christian who dies to sin has a new walk. A new walk because of Christ's death-defying, sin-destroying power. He walks in newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. In them. And so we walk in obedience. We're no longer given over to the tyranny, to the powerful rule of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that triple headed trinity monster that keeps us from Jesus. But if any man be in Christ, in Christ crucified, in Christ resurrected, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are come new. See, if you're in Christ, you have this new desire, this new passion different from the world, to be recreated not only unto, but to live in obedience, obedience to the will of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that leads me to the third thought, the last thought. How do you fight against worldliness, therefore? Maybe you're asking the question by this time, if the dominion of sin and Satan in the world has been defeated in Christ then why are we talking so much about fighting against worldliness? Ought we not just rest in the finished work of Jesus? Well, 
while the dominion of sin in the world has been broken through union with Christ in His death and resurrection in believers, don't forget the remnants of worldliness cling to us. John Owen said they cling to us like spurs cling to clothing. Owen said, sin is always behind your elbow. It always wants to get in at you again. Sin and worldliness no longer reign, but they still remain. And therefore, we need to fight against them. If we, don't, if, we don't, if we aren't convinced of that, we'll make little progress in our sanctification. The test of whether or not we are truly Christians is related to how we relate to the world and whether we keep ourselves from its pollution. That's one of the marks of grace. There's many more, of course. But the warnings in the New Testament against worldliness remind us that we must be constantly watching and fighting and always ready, always warring against this world as long as we're in this world. And the only way we can do that is through union with Christ. For John said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And yet, while this victory is only in and through Christ, we're not passive. We don't say, well, let go and let God, and then live by our feelings. No, we'll, we'll be swallowed up again in worldliness in no time. We must fight, you see. And three primary virtues we must cultivate in our union with Christ. Three, three fruits that flow out of union with Christ, we must cultivate that. The first is mortification, mortification, which means to kill sin, to put the sword through sin, to put off the old man. Paul says, Colossians 3, mortify, mortify your member, your members, that is, every bodily part you have. Mortify it upon the earth when you're drawn toward sin. Turn away from sin. Hate sin. Say no to sin. Shut the door. Shut the window to sin. When I was in Wales once, there was a feisty Christian woman, 85 years old. My, was she feisty. And yet she was godly. But she said one day, three thieves broke into her home. They tied her up. They put her in a chair. And they began to steal all kinds of things, including her grandmother's heirloom china. She could hear them banging. She was blindfolded, but she could hear them banging around with it. So she said, you thieves, you don't belong here. God will one day bring you into judgment. Be gone, thieves. And one of the thieves sat down beside her, and she told me, began to talk about his deprived childhood and began to kind of get weepy. And the other two thieves began to mock with him. And the three thieves then got into an argument together, and they all left, and they forgot the china. (laughs) So the story ended well. But afterwards, I was thinking about that, you know. That's what we ought to say to sin. You see, when sin rings our doorbell and we open the door to see who the visitor is, John Bunyan said, you haven't sinned. It's only when you let Mr. Sin in. If you shut the door right away and say, I'm a Christian. I've got no business sinning. I'm dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's who I am. That's my identity. You are mortifying sin by the grace of God. You turn away from it. And you see, that's what John said we should do in 1 John 2, 16. 
if we strike a death blow to the worldliness within us, then the worldliness that seeks to penetrate us will not destroy us. And so John calls this the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So these are the three forefronts of the battle. As we mortify sin, as we kill sin, we first of all go against the lust of the flesh. So what does that mean? Well, it means, for one thing, self-control. For our body, Paul tells us, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And will you defile your body with fornication, Paul says? If he wrote Corinthians today, he'd probably say, will you defile your body with pornography? Will you, will you go ahead and hit that button on the computer that will feed the lusts of your flesh? Sexual morality, sexual fidelity is one man, one woman in marriage. The Bible forbids any flirtation or physical intimacy outside of marriage. God has wisely placed sexual intimacy within the sanctity of marriage. And so, to kill the lust of the flesh means I also must be a person that does not generate the lust of the flesh in others. We must be modest about the way we live, about the way we dress, so that we don't encourage lust, you see. Worldly music, worldly parties, unedifying entertainment, you name it. Anything that stirs up the lust of the flesh, we must avoid. Today our consciences are so desensitized that if you see a movie that has quite a bit of sin in it, probably many of us don't think much about it. Our consciences don't pound. As long as we are watching that movie that is breaking one commandment of God after another... We're participating, the old reformers and Puritans would say, in that very sin because we're allowing all these lusts of the flesh to come at us. And if you know your own heart a little bit, you see, you can't just stand there and say, oh, well, I'm such a strong Christian. I'm not troubled by the lust of the flesh. So I can watch all these things and not be impacted whatsoever. No way. It's drip, drip, drip. John says you need to kill the lusts of the flesh. My dad used to put it this way when we were young. We used to say, well, can, you know, Dad, can we go over and I'm um, 14 or now maybe, uh, 13 perhaps, can we go over and watch this movie at our friend's house? Do well, you know what kind of movie it is? Well, yeah, it's not too bad, Dad. Are, are you sure? Well, I'll tell you what you do, son. You go up to your bedroom and you get down on your knees And you ask God if you can glorify Him in watching this movie. If you can't, don't do it. Because you're put on this earth for one reason, to glorify God 24-7. Think about it. Paul tells us in Philippians 4-8, whatsoever you do, make sure it's honest and just and pure, and lovely, and of good report. Put off the lust of the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14, to fulfill the lusts thereof. So mortification involves killing the lust of the flesh. It involves 
killing the lust of the eyes, secondly. We must battle against the battle of the eyes. Satan's been using our eyes since paradise. He used our eyes, the eyes of Eve, to be drawn to the fruit. And people mock and joke about it. This is no joke. John Bunyan, in his book, Holy War, said there are two main gates into man's soul, into the soul of man. Two main gates. One is eye gate. The other is ear gate. What you let into your ears, into your eyes, that is ultimately, normally, what you will become. Today, Satan makes such fruit even more tempting by allowing us to see it in the privacy of our own home, in videos or over the internet. He glamorizes sin and doesn't show us all the evil consequences of it. So murder becomes thrilling. Profanity becomes everyday speech. Entertainment makes adultery look innocent, commonplace, even exciting. We need to rid ourselves of anything that promotes the lust of the eyes, of all material that contradicts the Ten Commandments, as much as we can. We ask, don't lead me into temptation, yet we walk right into temptation. James says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it is finished brings forth death. Flee the lust of the eyes, John is saying. And follow Paul who said this, herein do I exercise myself. It's a battle, you see, he's exercising. To have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And then there's the pride of life. We must battle against the pride of life. You know, pride is so, so unique because most sins turn us away from God. But pride is a direct attack upon God. It lifts our hearts above God and against God. It seeks to dethrone God and to enthrone ourselves. Pride is at the heart of all sin. Pride and unbelief at the heart of all sins. The Puritan George Swinock said, Pride is the shirt of the soul that man put on first when he fell in paradise And it is the shirt we will take off last when we die. How do we mortify pride? Especially in a culture like ours that thinks it's a good thing. I'm so proud of who I am. Well, I'll tell you, the Puritans knew how to strip away pride. Richard Mayo, a lesser-known Puritan, said this, Should that man be proud who has sinned as you have sinned? And lived as you have lived and wasted so much time and abused so much mercy and omitted so many duties and we we neglected so great a gospel and so great means to embrace that gospel? Should that man be proud who has so grieved the Holy Spirit of God so many times in his life as you had done, so violated the law of God, so dishonored the name of God? Should that man be proud who has such a heart that you have? So you mortify pride by first considering how sinful you are. I've got no reason to be proud. I should be a thousand times more holy than I am. God's been so good to me in my life. It's an oxymoron that I should sin it all against him. And I think that's the way Christians ought to feel. But also consider Christ. If you'd kill 
if you'd really kill worldly pride and live in godly humility, look at your Savior. As John Calvin put it, you can't be a proud Christian when your soul is encamped at the cross of Calvary. A crucified Jesus and a proud Christian are an oxymoron. What has he done for me? And what have I done for him but just reward him sin upon sin upon sin? Oh, God, help me to crucify the wretched pride of my heart. Another way that I use to, to, um, to crucify pride is I, I like to read books of really godly Christian heroes, missionaries, ministers, other people who've really lived a godly life. Oh, they crush me. But they also stimulate me. But they make me realize I haven't arrived. And then seek a deeper knowledge of God, of His attributes, of His glory. You know, like Job and Isaiah, when they saw God, they were just humbled in the dust, weren't they? In fact, anybody who saw God, who even saw an angel, was thrown into the dust. Job says, I've heard of thee. You know, Job's been kind of arguing with God increasingly through 40 chapters. Finally, God shows Himself to Job. Doesn't even give him an answer. Just shows himself. And Job humbles himself before God. Says, I've heard of thee, but now I see thee with the scene of my eye. And I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. Abraham says, who am I but dust and ashes to approach unto God? Crush that pride, the pride of life. View overcoming pride as a lifelong process that calls you to grow in servanthood. And say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the essence of humility and the essence of sanctification and the essence of gratitude and the essence of the Christian life. And then secondly, You don't only need to mortify sin if you really would fight against worldliness. You need to grow in vivification in Christ. Vivification is the quickening or the bringing to life, the excitement to do the will of God, the excitement to be used, to be raised up in newness of life, to serve God. See, the Christian life isn't preeminently about bemoaning yourself. The Christian life is even more preeminently about serving Christ the joy of knowing Him better, of using the public means of grace, for example, to get to know Him better through the preached Word, through the, through, through the, uh, the sacraments, baptism, and the Holy Supper, through corporate singing in, in the house of God or in a conference like this, through all these spiritual disciplines that are public, you see, we grow with the body of Christ and we're quickened and we're aroused to serve Him and fear Him and love Him. And the contrary affection, as Thomas Chalmers would put it, the contrary affections, contrary to this world, will purge out the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because the joy of God, the joy of serving Him, The joy of communion with God. The experience of fellowship with the almighty creator of the heaven and the earth. That will expunge the contrary affections.
but there's also the private means of grace. Reading the Bible, searching it, praying over it, loving it, meditating upon the Scriptures, memorizing it, laying it up in our heart, putting it to good use, changing our lives, making holy resolutions to live holy and solely to God. All of these things, you see, help us, these spiritual disciplines, to become more like Christ. To become more like Christ. And then thirdly, obedience. Obedience. As we grow in faith through the means of grace, through the spiritual disciplines, we are increasingly enabled to trample the world under its feet. The world, you see, when you use the spiritual disciplines avidly, humbly, zealously, they make Christ and the things of God so beautiful, so three-dimensional, so colorful, so exciting, so uplifting that the world becomes drab and boring and an object of pity compared to communion with Jesus. And that makes me want to obey him more. This is the love of God in us, says John, that we keep his commandments for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. The aim of the world's commandments is to gain wealth, fame, social standing, secular power, and human pleasure. Jesus Christ aimed for none of those things. He overcame the world by obeying God's commandments, loving God above all, loving his neighbors himself. That's the goal of those who are born of God, even though we all fall short. That's what we yearn to do. Unconditional obedience to God's will. It's the essence of godliness. When pleasing God becomes more important than pleasing people, the believer overcomes his love for this world's honor and riches and pleasures and entertainments and friendships. Which brings me to my last point. Anticipation in Christ. So, how do we fight against the world? Mortify sin, vivification, quickening the graces that look to Jesus. And then this, a forward-looking anticipation. Jesus tells us he had joy even on the cross because he was looking forward to the day when he could say, Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. With joy he endured the cross. You know, we were just in the Sing Conference uh, just a few days ago, and uh, Joni uh, Erickson Tata was, came, she couldn't come, but she, she came on, on Zoom and she was interviewed and it was just amazing what she said. Just amazing. How God has used suffering in her life to crucify the world, to make her love Christ the more. And how she anticipates being with him forever without ever needing a wheelchair again and just being sin-free and Emmanuel's grasp. But that's the way every believer feels. Isn't that true? I get to be with Jesus forever. And this future is without attempting Satan. It's without any temptation at all to sin and no temptation to be tempted. I will be as holy as he is holy. He'll see no sin in me or in you, dear believer. And you'll get to be sin-free and enjoy sweet communion with him with no obstacles in the way. Married to Jesus Christ forever. We're going to hear about that in more detail tomorrow night. But let me close with 
with three, uh, three quick applications. Number one, in Pilgrim's Progress, you know the story that Interpreter took Christiana into a room where a man held a muckrake in his hand. Another person stood by the man, offering him a beautiful heavenly crown, dangling it, as it were, over his head in exchange for his muckrake. But the man never looked up at the crown. He paid no attention to the offer. He just kept looking down. You remember the story. Raking in the muck, giving all his attention to gathering up grass and sticks and dirt. And then Bunyan says, do you know who this man was who refused the crown and just spent his time muckraking in this earth? The man of this world. Is that you tonight? Are you just muckraking in this earth? Or are you going forward anticipating the crown of Christ and the joys of heaven? If your life is characterized by the love of this world, cry immediately to Jesus Christ for a new heart. Without being born again, you'll never overcome the world. My second illustration is this. There was a minister, close friend of Charles Spurgeon, named Roland Hill. Things were not going well in his church, so he thought. Sinners weren't coming to Christ. And one day he looks out of his study window. He's kind of depressed, and he sees a farmer going to market. And the farmer is just, his pigs are walking behind him, and he just walks into the, the, uh, the slaughterhouse, and the pigs follow him right in. And the farmer goes, or Roland Hill goes, this is amazing. i got to meet this man. So the farmer comes out, and Roland Hill is right there to meet him. He says, how do you do it? How do you get pigs to follow you into a slaughterhouse to their death? And I cannot get people to follow Jesus Christ to life eternal. Oh, the farmer said, didn't you see what I was doing? In my pockets, as I walked along, I had just, just a little bit of pig's food. And every few steps, I just let out a few crumbs. And those pigs are so stupid. For a few crumbs, they'll just walk right into their death. May I say to you with love, you know your own heart, your own life. Are you following the pig's food of this world? like the prodigal son, more than the Word of God. Don't destroy yourself with worldliness. And finally, my last illustration. There was once a northern Scotland shepherd boy who bedded down his sheep one night. And there was a ferocious storm, and it broke the viaduct over the valley and the train track was just laying smashed in the valley in the morning. And the shepherd boy went up the embankment and ran to the track, knew when the train was coming, got there in time to stop the train from going down into the abyss, into the valley. And the conductor just waved him away. And the boy threw himself across the track. The conductor slammed on the brakes, ran over the boy, stopped just in time. People were sleeping on the train. They jumped out. They ran to the edge. 
of the gulf, the chasm, they looked down. They saw the mangled track. And then they saw the mangled remains of the shepherd boy. And no one said a word. No one said a word. Until finally, one old man said, that boy there, that boy there, he saved my life. Dear friends, tonight, Jesus Christ throws himself across the track again of your life. And he's saying to you, the train of your life, which is going 90 miles an hour, needs to stop before you go down into the abyss. You need to consider your ways. You need to repent. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to see him on the cross. And don't rest until you can say, that God-man there, that God-man there, he saved my life. And then go out and live for him. And the worldliness inside of you, through union with Jesus, will receive a mortal blow. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, I ask thy blessing upon this address. Please, please purge us of worldliness and help us to live wholly and solely for Jesus Christ out of union with him to do our Father's will and help us to mortify sin, to have the quickening power of the Spirit, and to have anticipation for being with Jesus forever, even though we're still in Vanity Fair for now. Oh God, Jesus is so precious. And through him, the triune God is so beautiful. Help us to fall ever more in love with thee and ever more out of love with ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.